This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that, well, wishes it had a house by a lake. Sound interesting? I bet it does. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me today is not Anirban Mahanti. The doctor is not in the house. In fact, we're doing an occasional interview series we like to call Motley Fool Money The Interview. It's remarkably inventive as a name, but hopefully it'll catch on. We've got something a little bit different this week. In fact, this is a conversation I've been looking forward to for a literally years. Literally years, because this is a guy I actually can't talk to about stocks in any other setting other than a public one. Of course, the man I'm talking about is Mr. Joe Mager. G'day, Joe. G'day, Scott. How are you? Oh, mate, I'm exceptionally well, and I'm very excited we get to actually talk stocks in some form for about the first time ever. Now, if you're a regular Motley Fool member or listener, you may know Joe as Uncle Joe Mager. If you do, then props to you. Feel free to give him a shout out on social media, at Mager. That's M-A-G-Y-E-R. Joe, you and I worked together. In fact, we still kind of work together. We work for the same company, but due to a Chinese wall between our appropriate businesses, we haven't talked stocks in what? Is it three years? Yeah, three, three and a half. So, yeah. so I talked with our lawyer before this. Oh, go on, go on. No, yeah, it's just, it's funny. This is the only way that we can actually talk about stocks is to, right. to do, do a radio show or a podcast or something like that. Exactly. Can't actually have a conversation about it. So we have, and look, to, part of that is actually self-imposed, right? Which is one of the cool things about The Motley Fool. We've chosen to separate The Motley Fool membership business that most of our listeners will know about. And our funds management business called Lake House Capital, of which Joe is the head and chief investment officer, we basically said, look, let's make them different businesses, different systems, different offices, the whole lot, just so we can be absolutely sure ourselves and so our members and fund investors can be absolutely sure that there is nothing funny going on. Not all of our would-be or actual competitors do the same thing, and that's their choice. We choose something very, very different, so we never, ever have our integrity questioned, or we have to even think ourselves about what have we said to who and what do we know, and just it makes life a whole lot better for us, a whole lot simpler for us, except for these kind of conversations. So, Joe, you and I met, I want to say... I'm always a buzzkill at the Christmas party, because... (laughs) I walk in and everybody on the, the publishing business, the newsletter side, they have to stop talking about stocks and you can just tell they're waiting for me to go to the bathroom so they can resume having a fun conversation. The first time we actually got together post Lakehouse being formed, and I'll talk a bit about Lakehouse in a minute, I can remember we kind of all sat there in kind of a little bit of stunned silence. We kind of had to work out what else we had in common because, you know, as an investing group, we would just sit down and, and talk would turn in within 30 seconds to some company or stock or something. You don't realize how much you do it until you're not allowed to. And it was just a really awkward kind of first. We kind of got over it now as, as a team, but it was a really awkward first. I think it was a, was it the pizza restaurant? Uh, we three years. It was just, three it was years. really yeah. strange. Yeah. <laughs> it was really bizarre. Anyway, now, Joe, you do run Lakehouse Capital. Lakehouse is the Motley Fool's funds management business here in Australia. And I'm going to get to that. But what I want to start on is a simple question, mate. What on earth is going on on stock markets right now? Well, that's a great. It's a great question. Look at the way we kind of think of it, and you know, at Lake House, you know, we take a very foolish view. We have no strong conviction over what markets do over the short term or even the medium term. We're business focused, long term investors. So, you know, with those qualifiers out there, I guess what I'd say is that I say something that sounds so obvious, and yet I think so many people have underestimated. One is that markets are forward-looking. So mm-hmm. when everyone was freaking out in, what, March? Um, yep. <laughs> and into April, everyone was just consumed with, but the economy, but the economy, not really 
processing that that's not how markets work. They look at what's going to happen, not what's already happened, or even what's happening now. Um, the second component to that is just that there has been an immense wave of liquidity and stimulus provided from fiscal and monetary authorities. Um, and our, you know, our view at Lake House was look. Once it became clear that the Fed, and this is, I don't think it's a coincidence that markets rebounded at the point where the Fed basically said, we'll do anything. They said all but, we'll <laughs> do anything <laughs> to support the economy. Yep. You know, once that was clear, you took a lot of liquidity risk off the table, and you kind of took off a lot of that GFC style, you know, is the market going to implode on itself? Will there be liquidity issues rippling through markets? And once that was kind of taken off the table, then I think people could start looking forward again. And, um, you know, at the same time, it became clear that initially people were worried that we're talking about 4% mortality rates off initial data from China. And then it turned out to be far, far, far um, less. And, you know, it's very heartening. It's great news. So you kind of combine, oh, this isn't nearly as bad with what we thought with, yeah, right. oh, central banks and governments the world over are unleashing unprecedented waves of stimulus. You know, I, I've heard people say, you know, lower interest rates won't cure a disease. Well, that's true. But, you know, you ask somebody with a mortgage how they feel about lower interest rates, and I'd say they feel good. Um, Pretty good morphine, right? It might have cured yeah. it, but it's what it makes it feel a whole yes, lot better. Yes, it is. <laughs> and uh, in aggregate, it matters. It also, the reality is it boosts asset prices, you know, and, and yeah, we right. invest in assets. And particularly growth investors benefit from, I mean, mm -hmm. all equity investors essentially benefit from lower rates and stimulus. So yeah. Yeah. I know that all sounds very technical, but when you get down to it, you know, markets are forward looking and there's been a flood of stimulus and the virus, yeah. uh, obviously, while still tragic, um, and I don't mean to make light of it, but the impact health wise in aggregate has been not nearly as bad as a lot of people initially feared, which is great. Oh man, I, I, I saw some, and so look, I should say first thing, but you are one of the few people I regularly am in contact with, well, one of the few sensible people I regularly hear from or, or you know, social media or otherwise. And you were saying pretty early on, look, this thing is this thing is more serious than people were taking it for. And I'm I'm one of those people who was late to the party, right? I saw it coming. I thought, okay, we've been through SARS, we've been through MERS, we've been through what was the Middle East one? That was MERS. Uh, was it oh, Zika, Ebola? I mean, we've kind of seen these potential threats coming and then disappearing, coming and disappearing, coming and disappearing. And I was one of those guys who said, look, we'll wait and see. You know, maybe it's more, but you know, there's so much history that says this thing will blow over. And you were one of the guys saying, "No, no, no, no. This is this is kind of serious, right?" And I was I was late to that particular party, so full credit for you for acknowledging it. And I say, as I said, to some degree, at one point they were saying, like, you know, one percent of the population was going to die of this stuff. And some of the early forecasts were horrific, absolutely horrific. And so, as you say, not to say that the lives lost aren't tragic, or the the people who suffered didn't suffer meaningfully. The fact that it wasn't anywhere near as bad as it could have been, I think, is a is a huge. Um, I don't even want to say benefit, but it's just hugely better than perhaps things might have been, which is a, which is a big deal. Mate, so the market's off. Last I checked, and the shares are up today. We should say we're recording this on the 9th of June because goodness knows what happens between now and when we go to air. But um, markets, you know, we're off about 17% from the highs. We're up 32-odd percent from the lows. It's kind of one of those scenarios where it's, it's strange to be both at the same time. And certainly so soon after, right? A high on February 20, a low on March 23. We're in June nine now, and, and we're kind of we're in some weird limbo. The S and P said it, I think, was an all-time record uh, overnight. Our time, the ASX as we're recording, has gone through six thousand points. 
Where are we now, mate? What should investors be thinking about the market on June 9, given where we're at? I mean, are we, are we up enough? Are we up too much? Are we down enough? Are we down too much? How, how do you kind of contextualize the market right now, given all that stuff going around? Well, I think it's fair to say that there's already been, in late March, I think there was a wild overreaction. And, you know, we were looking at some smaller listed companies here that I won't I won't name names just because they're pretty petite, but there was one here that uh, had a, about a quarter of its market cap and net cash, um, stronger, strong founder alignment still in the business. They'd been cutting costs out of it. it the majority of revenue was subscription-based and subscriptions renewed at the client level at about 93%, which is very strong. They're a leader in a, glow, in a growing global category. And it was selling at one times an EV to recurring rev of one, 1. 1.0. Wow. And, okay. you know, and this was growing, that ARR has been growing high 20s for the past couple of years. And they have some non-recurring revenue to which we signed zero value. You know, and right. you just, I know that's, that's a lot of gobbledygook <laughs> for people who are listening and you're not used to talking about this level of depth. But I'll just say that is stupid cheap. And yeah. You really only see stupid cheap prices like that. The last time I'd seen that was a GFC, where it was just right. an absolute fire sale, and we—that was pretty fun, uh, you know. And we were <laughs> we were net buyers, and uh, I'm happy with how that worked. But you know, there was a period there where people were just freaking out, and there was a lot of forced selling, and you know, we we thought that was really attractive. We're a long way from there, you know. That business is more than. It's probably close to have tripled from its lows, just to give you a sense of how cheap it got. Now it, it fell and an awful long way down there. You more frequently. Well, <laughs> yeah, that's right. That, that's worked out nicely. Not everything has, to be clear. Hold on. Um, but uh, I, I think it's important to kind of look underneath the hood of it because you know the headline, and I think a lot of people focus on okay, well, here's what the index did, but there are multiple speeds within that you know i think businesses that um i mean historically we have a strong preference for businesses with unique and enduring ip network effects and or extremely loyal customers uh, they're gaining share growing markets they're not cyclical they're not capital hungry so and they have strong balance sheets so all that actually put us in a nice position going into the crisis uh, but social distancing just, it, it radically pulled forward adoption curves for different business models, one of which was online retail, another is digital payments, um, particularly online-centric. Um, you know, and it just it brought forward literally years uh, because what happened? You had people who'd never shopped online who started shopping online. You had merchants who'd never sold stuff online who, like, I now have two... I have three different butcher shops that will deliver to me, <laughs> and um, one of them had dabbled before. But two of them, you know, they just suddenly were like, "Hey, we now deliver," yeah. and yeah. We're, we're you know we're doing dropship deliveries. And there's just mm. this explosion of merchants who realized I need to meet customers on new terms. That it just they might have gotten there three to five years from now, but this just forced them to. So you've got new people who started shopping merchants who have expanded their offerings and then people like us who are already shopping online well you've, you've now just got a much wider menu of choice so you know I, I don't think it's a one-off it's not like toilet paper sales which is the perfect perfect example <laughs> yeah, where right. you know aggregate demand probably hasn't changed 
right? Uh, but you just had a pull forward in the buying. Yeah. In this case, consumer preferences really have been fo- pulled forward years. And so mm-hmm. in the cases of those companies, I think it's entirely appropriate that they've they've really done very well. And I don't, you know, it, if anything, the last Visa data that they published um, showed that there was a continued acceleration in e-commerce through the end of May, even though the U.S. had already started reopening. Um so we think it's pretty powerful and exciting. On the other hand, you know, a lot of businesses that really struggled, it's not obvious to me that they're going to rebound quickly. Um, but in aggregate, you know, if you look at, it's funny, right? Because we don't really invest in uh, materials, energy. Um, they're both cyclical, capital-hungry industries. We don't typically in touch utilities, um, which have incredibly stable returns on capital. It's just that they're terrible. Um, <laughs> So, you know, we tend to avoid things like that. Just sustainably awful, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. sustainably awful. It's, a, it's impressive. Um, but, you know, I, I think nice. for businesses nice. that are still struggling, you know, the struggle is real. And I don't think that's obviously changing. Um, you know, but if, if you do look at some of the, I mean, you look at the employment data from the U.S. last week, I, I don't know that there will ever be a bigger miss from economists the, the only one that's comparable, okay, so anyone who is not a you know, stock market wonk, people were expecting 8 million jobs lost in a month yeah. in the U.S., which you know normally a move of 200,000 would be a big month, so wow. 8 million okay. lost. Yeah, and it yeah. said yeah. there was a gain of two and a half. So <laughs> it's just hard to overstate the magnitude of the miss and yeah. you know was that like something like is that eight percent of the, the miss total is something like is that eight percent of the u.s working population if i do my maths really quickly it must be something close to that it's, I guess. it's chunky it's a chunky number and <laughs> you know that that's that's fantastic news it's exciting yeah, and it's right. certainly yeah. i think is yeah. probably it's grabbed a lot of people by the collar and yeah. You know, but that said, that data is also backward looking, right? And people who are kind of relying on that, you know, may have been a little slow to notice that a lot of businesses were getting back to work. Mate, how do you, so so I I take your point about things being pulled forward. I know CEO of Shopify, one of the hot stocks in the US, certainly one of the the providers of, of online websites, which has gone nuts over the last little while, has said they're effectively implementing their 2030 plans now. He thinks that things have been brought forward as much as 10 years in terms of what they need to do as a business. How have you gone of just, you know, the new normal idea, right? It's been around as long as you and I have been around. There's always a new normal coming around. It's always going to be a new normal. How have you guys thought about how to think or maybe some examples of how you want to answer the question? The things that are, that are changing or not changing as a result. How have you looked at, I mean, obviously trend acceleration is one thing. Something's going to change as a result, right? Some retailers may go out of business because fewer people are shopping there. Some habits have changed. Some are simply on pause and going back to. Now, we know Buffett said famously that uh, if history was all that mattered, the richest people in the world would be librarians. So, you know, expecting we can simply extrapolate doesn't make sense. You've got to try to think through, okay, which which things are on pause? So what do we go back to doing all of a sudden? Um, maybe new car sales might be one of those, for example. At some point, new car sales in theory pick up again. Maybe they never do. Um, on the other hand, things have, things have fundamentally changed in a way that we may never go back to. And so thinking about businesses and trying to work out which ones are the ones that are cheap because the market hates them, but they're sustainable moving forward, and cheap because the market hates them, and it's right to hate them because this is some sort of you know negative inflection point. How, how have you how have you processed that question when, you, when it's come to picking the stocks you've, you've bought for the fund? Uh, it's a great question, and it's a lot more. It, it's a pretty nuanced question. So you could just say travel if you're being really flippant. Mm. But within travel, 
I think it's pretty clear there's going to be a lot more domestic travel happening. Um, <laughs> yes, exactly. Because it's it's lower cost, easier. You can probably do it from your car. Um, yeah. Relative to you know hopping on a plane and as someone who goes back and forth to the states pretty often, I personally yeah. don't have a lot of enthusiasm for <laughs> for flying 23 hours to the oh, east man, coast yeah. of the U.S. You know, in a tube with the same people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think that you know even within travel, you've got. You know, I think you've got regional travel. You could call it local. That'll come back a lot sooner. Mm-hmm. Then you've got regional. You got domestic, and then you start talking international. I think that'll be a lot slower mm-hmm. to come back. But then, even within that, you know, companies with strong balance sheets and market leading positions, in a lot of cases, are going to come out of this stronger. So, right. Booking.com, uh, which we don't own at the fund, uh, but it's a business that. It's the biggest player. Like I have to explain it to Americans because uh, booking's so popular in Europe, it's far less popular <laughs> in the states. They, it used to be called Priceline, um, and right, there is right, a Priceline. Right. No relation to the Priceline, um, you know, consumer <laughs> slash Pharmacy. pharma yeah, business yeah, yeah. here. Yeah. Um, but that's a business that it's essentially an aggregator of demand from individuals mm-hmm. who want hotels and hotels who can't get eyeballs on their own and right. booking brings them together and ca- basically captures some of the value between the two. What happened during the GFC, what could be happening again now when we're watching for is, you know, hotels are weak and there'd been this push for a while that hotels had these membership programs that they were taking business off of booking and they were trying to do more direct sourcing. But hotels are badly, badly struggling right now, probably as much as yeah, anyone. Right. So, you know, I think watching competitive dynamic shifts will be interesting. Another one, digital advertising. So one of the it's it was interesting because we own Alphabet and Facebook and I own, own them both personally. And what happened with both fairly predictably was the spend going into those channels fell precipitously. And why is that? It's because it's the first spend you can shut off and you can shut off the easiest. Yeah. But it's also rebounded really quickly because it's also the easiest to flip back on. And I think what will end up happening is when you see kind of retroactive ad spend, they'll have gained share. Now, they were already gaining share, but I think that will have accelerated because while it's the first to switch on and off, if you're a CFO, you know, head of marketing, you know what your ROI is on that spend. It's measurable. And, you know, if you run run a television ad if you put something on the side of a bus yeah brand brand building has value but you can't measure it mm-hmm. and a financial crisis and a recession has a way of forcing people to measure value so in that sense um, you know I think they'll actually come out of this much much stronger than they were going in so yeah it's it's been nice. fun and interesting to watch so we're not going to say like house capital lab with your face on the side of a Sydney bus anytime soon is that probably that? not <laughs> I would I was going to say, I'd pay to see that. I would pay to see I would pay for a photo of a lake house couple out on the side of a bus. All right. Uh, but let, let's, let's go back a bit. Um, we first met about eight, nine years ago, I think. Um, and I think we first laid eyes on each other in Omaha, Nebraska. We were both there for the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting. Uh, not long after that, you, uh, you joined us at Fool Australia. Many uh, very observant listeners will notice your accent is a native Australian, at least by, um, by origin. Uh, you, so you and I kind of came into each other's orbit because you were leading the Motley Fool's uh, investment service, then called Inside Value, 
at that point you and I had more hair I think it's fair to say and for those who uh, can't see the video because I'm not recording it um, you might you might uh, you might realize that Joe and I are follically challenged at least in in some decent part um, so at a long and, and successful investing career I will say it because you probably won't that inside value was ranked the best investment newsletter in the US over a five-year period as of some date you may want to tell me the year if you know it just so we can put it in context but Literally the very best investment newsletter in the US is no mean feat. So I'm happy to blow Joe's tires up on this one. Uh, and so that's kind of how we met, mate. Soon after that, you arrived on our shores. So first, first things first. Do you remember what year it was that IV was named the top? You know, I, investment I newsletter in the don't. US? But if you if you, you Google us, you'll find it. There was we, we got a go. shout out. In the, Google that. In the Joe made your inside value. Yeah. Well, there you go. That's pretty impressive. But career highlight so far, would you say, or is there is there more? Oh, uh, that was pretty cool. That quickly? was pretty cool. Um, That's pretty awesome. I'm, I'm working. You know, I'm working <laughs> to the top Wall Street it. Journal. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. All right. So, mate, take me back even before that. How did you get started investing? Sure. So I got into investing when I was a wee lad. Um, I grew up spending my summers at my grandparents' lake house. And my granddad was an entrepreneur, retired pretty young, and was the kind of guy who built his own homes. Um, he did some architectural work, and he literally built the, the house, designed and built the house himself. And we spent our summers there. Oh, he was an amazing guy, and he loved business and investing. And so during the day up at the lake, most of the kids would be out running around swimming, jumping, playing. Um, and I would just gravitate towards hanging out with my granddad and he would be watching CNBC or thinking about companies and he would just kind of talk me through what was happening. And I was always the, the nerd among the kids. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's just, it's something that he was really passionate about that I totally soaked up. And for my 13th birthday, 13th birthdays were big for him. So he gave my older cousin a a hunting rifle. He gave. It's very American, you know. Give your thirteen-year-old gun. <laughs> uh, he gave my uh, another cousin a piano, and he gave me ten shares of Shaw Industries, um, which is <laughs> now awesome. owned by Berkshire Hathaway. So it was uh, the, the world's nice. largest carpet manufacturer. And yeah. yeah, and I would follow it, and I just got so passionate. So then I just kept staying with that, and I got uh, one day uh, Shaw's they were splitting their stock and my grandmother found a newspaper clipping from these people at the Motley Fool and she was like oh you should read this and I read it and they just did a wonderful job of explaining you know what a stock split was and I was like what oh, this is really interesting these guys just took <clears throat> you know a really complex topic and made it really simple like I'm a teenager and I get it and so I just started reading the fool and um, became a very avid reader and dot 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 and now I'm in Australia running a fund for them. <laughs> <laughs> but I can't believe I've never actually heard that story before. A lot of time we've known each other. I've obviously never thought to ask you about the origin story. So that's that's oh, actually yeah. quite cool. Thank you for thank you for sharing that. So let's do the dot dot dot. You end up at the you end up at the Motley Fool. You're a, you're an avid contributor to the Motley Fool's discussion boards in the US. I know that. And then uh, you started working for the Fool in editorial, I believe. Do I, do I get that yeah. right? And then moved to the investing team. Yeah. And you're at IV for a few years, and then there was the opportunity to come and spend a year in Australia, as I recall. Yeah. And uh, and you landed on our shores. I'm gonna I'm gonna try and speculate here and call it 2013. How did I go? Yep. Yep. There you go. Uh, and you and I worked together on Motley Fool Hidden Gems way back in the day. Um, I have some have some wonderful memories of, of us working together there. 
And then you went on to run a service called Motley Fool, Fool Pro, which absolutely streeted the market. You guys just had a spectacular success story. Um, oh, I want to I kind of talk a little bit about your evolution as an investor. Your inside value days were very valuey for those who kind of like to put buckets and, and names around styles of investing. Uh, you mentioned growth already. You were kind of a, you were kind of the value. You were the poster child, right? Well, your service was the poster child for value investing at the Motley Fool. When a guy like you ends up running, amongst others, the Lake House Small Companies Fund and looking for growth opportunities, that talks to a decent evolution, perhaps, or maybe maybe a misunderstanding of your investing style. Can you walk us through a little bit of kind of maybe post-shore industries, but but maybe start with start with inside value? Yeah. Um, how do you yeah, how sure. do you get running a value newsletter in America to running a growth fund in Australia? Sure. Well, I think inside value, um, the. I guess the backstory there was even then I was I was the growthy value guy at that. So So you, you were the value guy who picked Amazon when when people would turn the nose up at you for doing so, as I recall. Yes. And you almost got kicked out of the value club, I think. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I think they took my my license didn't renew. <laughs> Just say that. <laughs> um, my first pick at inside value was Google, which Wow. Was I don't know that that was well received by the members there. <laughs> Um, That's a pretty good first pick, though. Thank you. It's aged well. Um, but, you know, I, I've always thought that growth and value are two sides of the same coin. And um, I guess I'd say, you know, evolution-wise, I don't feel like I really invest that much differently, except that I've gotten a lot more focused on... Um, <sighs> A lot more focused on self-reinforcing dynamics of companies and right. on the capital preservation side. Um, there are probably companies that that I wouldn't touch. That I, I guess I learned a while ago um, had too much downside risk for my my liking. So when people think about, I don't know, when I talk about how we invest today, we're looking for asymmetric opportunities. So we're looking for multiple ways to win and a few ways to lose. What does right. that mean? Like most growth investors, you know, we're looking for businesses that are gaining share in growing markets. Um, they've got leading positions. They have attractive unit economics that we think could be reinvested in for much longer than a lot of people give credit for. Um, they're well run. Uh, the leadership teams have skin in the game, probably their, their reputation and legacy on the line with it. We like that kind of alignment. Um, you know, that, that's to the upside, how we're thinking. To the downside, this is kind of my background of, well, look, I, I don't want to pay too much for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also want to minimize points of failure within the, the investment thesis. And so we mm-hmm. spend a lot of time looking for not just ways that we think a good thesis could work out, but trying to minimize not just the number of points of failure, but the magnitude of those points of failure. And I think that that, that probably served us well with this crisis. Um, and we just have a general bias, for example, towards really strong balance sheets. And if you mm. pick up a textbook, it'll tell you that you minimize your cost of capital by maximizing your leverage. If you yeah. live in real life, what you'll find is that <laughs> during recessions and liquidity uh, periods where uh-huh. liquidity dries up, um, having a strong balance sheet allows you to play offense when your competitors are playing defense. And you know we've seen that across the board. And I don't... I don't think the full ramifications of that have have fully flowed through with a lot of our companies. Fascinating. I, I often quote you, maybe I even misquote you, mate, but uh, you said to me many, many, many years ago, something I've always remembered, which is in good times, companies are valued on earnings and in bad times, they're valued on book value. 
Yeah. I don't know you necessarily would, would use exactly the same terms these days, but your point about balance sheet strength and earnings is exactly that, right? The old, in good times, every investment banker will complain about lazy balance sheets, about too much cash, not enough debt, and as you say, the, 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 the old cost of capital. Also, just a quick tangent, I vividly remember Charlie Munger saying he has no idea what Berkshire's cost of capital is and has no intention of trying to calculate it. Um, it was more about, you know, his job is to term a dollar and more than a dollar. That was that was the only job. It didn't matter what the, the old whack, the weighted average cost of capital was. It just mattered that they were going to create value doing so. Um, but I've, I've always liked that, just that line, that, that way of thinking about, you know, in the good times, everyone's a, you know, it's the old Buffett line about swinging naked, right? In the good times, everyone's happy with earnings. And those earnings go away. What left is kind of, is the difference between success and failure. But you get you went through so this stuff. Which, are we talking about the big banks, basically? Uh, <laughs> would you like to talk about the big banks? Well, I mean, you know, when I moved here, you saw half a gap and you went straight through it. I like it. Yeah. Well, look, I, I moved here and I'm like, oh, okay. Oh, these banks, like, they seem really strong. What are they selling for? Spit take. Like, you know, and some of them, it's like, you know, three times tangible book value. And I'm like, mm-hmm. and I'm walking around. I'm like, is anybody concerned about that? <laughs> and they're like, no, it's pretty reasonable in earnings. And I'm like, but those aren't, these aren't like cross cycle earnings you're talking about. This is like, mm-hmm. you know, everybody's got so a property. A recession and, earnings. Yeah. yeah. You know, it seems like every, you know, every cab driver I talked to was talking to me about investment property and, um, you know, and no one, no one cares about balance sheets until times are tough and there are downswings. And I think it's a lesson that, Everybody, I, I learned the first time during the GFC, mm. so I don't pretend like right, right, you know right. I, I originated this brilliant insight all on my own. <laughs> uh, but it's a it's a hard won lesson that I think you know people people eventually learn, and I think a lot of people have learned that in the past three months. You know what the interesting thing? I think the difference between that and the rest of the finance community is I, I've I've said to the guys I might have even said on the podcast that I think the finance ha- has the worst collective memory of any discipline anywhere in the entire world. Our inability to remember the GFC in 2019 is, it's less than a decade ago. Like it's in every, almost everyone's working life. And yet the lessons are so quickly forgotten after a couple of good years. When 2020 came around, to your very point, the lessons you remembered from the GFC are the ones that kept you out of trouble. While others went through those things, should have learned those lessons, maybe even did for a while, and then probably forgot when the good times kind of took over again and then things got a bit, you know, and not even necessarily out of control, just simply people forgot that balance sheets matter, that cash matters, that, you know, even if you couldn't have predicted, no one could have predicted six months of no revenue for some companies. I mean, that was clearly never going to be, you know, in anyone's in anyone's you know estimate of future earnings. But just the concept that actually, as you say, balance sheet matters, cash matters, how indebted you are, how likely you are to turn that debt over, those things kind of matter a whole lot more than people maybe forget. And after only a couple of years of, of good times, I'm sure twenty twenty three or twenty four will be talking about the same kind of thing. Yeah. Well, you know, to totally pull the rug out on on the point I was making in the value of experience. I, and to go back to <laughs> to go back to Berkshire, um, you know, I was sitting there when they had the AGM recently, and mm. you know, he's a net seller of stocks. Yeah, and I'm like, let me get this straight. We just had no, okay. We have a picture. I can. We have a picture of Warren Buffett on our wall over here. I'm looking at it. You know, I couldn't think <laughs> any yeah, huge fan, huge yeah. fan. Yeah, um, a Berkshire shareholder, huge fan, but. When, you know, I'm just sitting there like, look, we just experienced the steepest market drawdown in history. And you're sitting there with a $100 billion plus pile of cash. If you're sitting on a cash pile like that and you're not buying after what was the steepest market drawdown in history, like, what are you holding out for? Now, granted, unlike 
normal people, Buffett's managing, you know, an asset intensive conglomerate with tons of, you know, insurance products underneath the hood that are probably really hard to wrap your head around. And he's in a different place than, you know, mom and pops listening to this, right? Um, moms and dads, anyway. Oh, there you go. Um, but my, my point was just that Buffett, yeah. to some extent, Buffett and a lot of more kind of seasoned investors who have probably got, you know, 50 years under their belts. Ironically, I think a lot of them missed the rally because they were so, they, they're like, we've never seen anything like this. And I'm like, you know, yeah, okay. in a way I kind of find that, I found that fun and liberating because I'm like, you're right. None of us have ever seen anything like this. But it was also just, <laughs> but in a way it was yeah. kind of like a fresh, it was a fresh um, start like an entirely new scenario for everyone to work through and i think what happened was there is value in experience but then there can be a little too much of if you're trying to retrofit what you've seen before just like my experience of watching a housing crisis in the states has basically caused me to look for them everywhere i go after that yeah um, right, okay yeah yeah and including yeah. here and consistently being wrong and yeah. what i'd say is you know it's possible that they were like, oh, I've seen this movie before, I've seen this movie before, but it's like, but you haven't. You haven't because yeah. things have never shut down so quickly. And that's true, but there's never been such a policy response. Like, if you look at how long, if you go back in time, between when housing prices peaked in the US, which was probably what, 2006, and when things like fully were, you know, blood in the streets crazy, it was almost three years. And, yeah. you know, there was a, I mean, maybe it was 2007, but there, there was a long, long stretch. And here it was like, yes, things fell off faster than ever. But the, the bazooka that governments fired and central banks fired, it was like, well, look, that probably means you're like, look, I don't know what's going to happen. But if we had the steepest drawdown ever with the fastest policy response, <laughs> I'm not, it's like I'm not predicting. I, I don't know right, what's going right, to happen right. in the short term, but yeah. I like that. <laughs> I find that pretty valuable <laughs> and I wouldn't underestimate the value of it. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. you know, and to say like, I have no idea what the market will do over the next month, three months. And, and I never do, uh, but Same I, yep. Yeah. So mate, I, I want to put you, try and get Warren Buffett's head for a second, just cause you raised it. It's a really fascinating one for me. Like was he, was he scared off by the airlines was the was the drawdown simply not? He was waiting for this grinding kind of you know just endless drawdown like the GFC where he figured he'd get good prices eventually. He he had said he was doing some deals, looking at some deals before the Fed stepped in, and simply the price he wanted to pay were were kind of taken away from him. Is he still stung by the low interest rate problem of how much do you pay and how long do rates stay low? Is it the airline losses that are just messing with his head? I mean, there's so many potential ideas. Uh, is it simply that with 100 billion dollars to spend? Unless you get a private buyer offering you a deal, there's only so much you can do in the actual public markets. Maybe he's waiting for the, you know, the Wrigley or the Mars or the something, you know, big off market deal because you just can't buy anything on market anymore. If, if it's, you, if it's you're probably a combo Buffett's of office, what's things. going on? Yeah, okay. I mean, it's probably a combo. But I have to say, I, you know, I saw over the weekend that Trump was basically trolling Buffett for having <laughs> bottom ticked selling the airlines, and it was like the one time that I'm like, you know what? Trump is right. <laughs> He's trolling Buffett. And I got to say, now, and Trump was like, hey, you know, even Warren Buffett gets it wrong sometimes. And I'm like, you know, well, I don't know what to say. Like, Buffett, he just dumped it. And, yeah. um, and you know, yeah, it, it was painful because it was probably his, 
and I, you know, I can speak to this. Like, I, occasionally yeah. you own a position that a lot of your investors um, have doubts about, and I think that's, yeah. to be honest, I think that's healthy. If all our investors loved all our positions at the same time, mm-hmm. that probably means that we're buying stocks <laughs> that everybody loves, and we're not being different enough. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that doesn't mean you need to be deep value, but you know, Berkshire investors in aggregate had been trained to dislike airlines, partly because Buffett had been yeah. spending 15, 20 years talking about how they were terrible businesses, <laughs> and then he went and bought a bunch of them. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. So, exactly. Do you think it, is, it, is it the guilt? Is it the kind of only I should have done that? Was there some of that kind of in his playing through his mind, do you think? I don't know. Only I should have done that. Now's the time to avoid making further mistakes. It does feel like, even his commentary at the annual meeting, mate, it seemed very much that he expected a lot worse or maybe the risk of a lot worse for a lot longer. Even his comments about the airlines, look, I'm not going to put more capital in them because who knows when they're going to fly again. His reluctance to kind of be really super upbeat on investing at that point. There was there was a really measured tone of like, well, over 30 years, stocks will still do well. It's very It was very easy to read a subtext into it, maybe incorrectly, that he was kind of expecting the next few years to be tough. That was a downer. There was out there, you know. Yeah, it was a downer. It? Yeah, I think that part of might have what happened is that his because he's running such a large company that a lot of those businesses in particular were really stung by the demand uh, commands just going to zero. I think it probably made him more susceptible to that. And from what, from my experience, people running private businesses have been much more, they're much more in the camp of why is the stock market rallying? You know, they're the people who are kind of more in that, like, that's not reflecting what's on the ground. And that's where I'm like, yeah, "Yeah, but but the market isn't investing in what's on the ground now. You know, it's it's 12 months, it's 18 months, and it's, Mm. yeah. Yeah, nice. I uh, I don't know I don't know what to make of that either. I have to say it's uh, yeah. You'd like to see Uncle Warren do a little bit better than that, but we'll see. We'll see, mate. So let's come back to the present. You you or maybe the slight uh, slight past recent past. You smashed the market at Pro. Did a spectacular job for our members there, and then you said "Um, I've got some other things I want to do because our members are asking for them, and that was kind of what brought Lake House about. Tell us about the kind of the genesis of the idea and how how the Motley Fool ends up running a funds management business. How you end up running the funds management business for the Motley Fool? We, we haven't done that before in any meaningful way in Australia. I haven't at all in Australia, and only sort of as an ancillary business in the US to that point. What's the genesis of the idea, and, and how do you go from being an advisor, a portfolio manager, and newsletter business to running your own fund? Sure, it's a yeah, it's an interesting journey. Um, well, we we had people. At the time, so Motley Fool Pro, for anyone who's not familiar, um, it, it has evolved a bit since I left. But when we were, when I was there, we were managing a million dollars in Motley Fool's capital. And it was in mm-hmm. a high-conviction portfolio focused on the ASX. And the idea was we'd tell people what we were going to buy, why, and put out research around it, how much we'd allocate. And then they would front-run us by at least two full trading days, and we had 30 days to execute our trade. So. Investors really liked it because if you were like investors who were like, you know, I want a you can do it, we can help solution. Yeah. And they ate it up uh, because it was like, okay, I'm getting position sizing advice, I'm getting an idea gen. Um, and for a lot of people, that's an awesome solution. But what I came around to, it was a couple of things. One was a lot of people just said, I would rather just give you a check and you do this. Like, I, I get what you're trying to do, but I would just yeah. be happier if you would do it for me because some some people love the thrill of it. They love 
reading the research, but there are a bunch of people who, in fact, I would say most investors are like, ah, just if you can deliver performance, <laughs> please just do that for me. I like um, you. I trust you. I can believe you could do it. Yeah. Don't make me and, do it myself. Yeah. And I think that was part of it. And then another was that particularly the smaller end of town, I, I found it easier to, uh, I'll, I have less market impact doing now than what I was doing then. Mm. And it makes it easier for me to help people. So, because you, and tell, tell us why, mate. Just for people who are listening who don't really understand that, you, if, you, if you're running a portfolio for uh, you, you know, model portfolio for a whole lot of members, you're not making the trades. How is it you can have less impact now when you're investing hundreds of millions of dollars? We'll get to that in a minute. Um, as opposed to when you're running a million dollars, the motley force money, and just say to people, hey, now's a good time to buy. How, how does that work? Uh, we just, well, because we don't have to, you know, investors don't, investors don't know what trades we're making until after the fact. And so it just gives you more, it gives you more leeway, um, more flexibility. You can move in a position more slowly, right? You can sort of buy bits and pieces at a time when you get the opportunity yeah, exactly. to move big trades and yeah. Yeah. But and for low liquidity stocks well, at the small end of the market, that makes a whole lot of sense, right? Because there's a whole it, lot of stocks that either trade by appointment or might do, you know, thousands of shares a day. But if you're going to try and, you know, get a whole lot of investors to buy at or around the same time, it's very hard to find enough opportunities and, and keep the impact small enough to deliver the sort of returns you can running a fund. Uh, it is, yeah. But I, I will put two caveats on it. One is that, you know, we're long-term investors and, you know, I, I try not to get, I hope none of our brokers are listening, but we try not to get too fussed about the price we pay over, you know, I'm willing to pay a penny more for something if we just get it yeah, done right. and we build a position in something that we think we could own for many years. Um, yep. And the second is, you know, different strokes for different folks, um, you know. Yeah, of course. And that's kind of what it boils down to. Some people want a solution that's managed for them, and some people, they want to be engaged with it. They want to um, manage it themselves. They just want some experienced, you know, some experienced professional to give them, um, you know, it's not personal, uh, but just give them yeah, some right. research and that fits mm-hmm. with, you know, type of investing that excites them. Help make their own decisions for sure, for sure. Real money advice from real people. Not just a couple of dicks with a Porsche. Get more at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Get more Motley Fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Now, Pro was a spectacular success, so I suppose you've come back to the field and Lake House has been a complete bust, right? Well, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm confused. I'm, I'm, leading, I'm, I'm giving you the opportunity to, uh, to sell Lake House returns without me having to say it. Oh, well. How well has Lake House gone since you joined? Um, the business, should say. It's gone well. You know, I, I think our performance, I mean, anyone who wants to hey, just Google us, go to lakehousecapital.com.au and uh, you can read about us and our performance. Um, and of course, past performance is not indicative of future returns. <laughs> um, yeah, look, we're, we're pleased with how things have gone. Um, but, you know, we're we're very much long-term investors and, you know, we're long-term high-conviction investors. And, and what that means is, if you're if you're pursuing long-term outperformance, you have to be willing to risk short-term out underperformance. And you know there are periods where we have that, just like every other manager. Uh, but we're we're happy with how things have gone. And I guess more broadly, I'm happy with how the business has been built out. You know, it just started with me and Donnie, uh, Donnie Buchanan, and we started the business together. You know, about four years ago now, the, the first fund 
small cap fund didn't launch until November 2016. Uh, but at that time, it was just the two of us. Now we've got 11 people. We've got five investors, two people in ops, um, two people in um, client services and distribution. You know, it's fun. We've gone from being in a you know tiny little shoebox office <laughs> to having like a, a real office. And, you know, it's not... <laughs> Uh, we're not sitting on top of Australia Square or anything like that, but it's um, it's been fun, and I, I've really enjoyed building out the team. And um, you know, I think the experience we've gone through over the past you know three four months obviously has been extremely difficult. But you know, like most high functioning teams, it it can bring out the best in people. And uh, I've just been really happy to see how people have treated each other, not just at Lake House, but within the Motley Fool. Um, and the amount of care that people in our company have put towards one another and make sure everybody's doing well and that our clients are doing well and our partners and our vendors are doing well. And yeah, so that's, that's all been really heartening, but, but it has been a lot of fun. And I feel like, you know, we're now, we're kind of now entering a next stage of the business where we, you know, we started with two guys, we're a full fledged mm-hmm. business now and, and that's its own new adventure. Very cool. Mate, and for anyone who is listening, I would heartily recommend going to lakehousecapital.com.au. All of Joe's monthly letters for fund investors are linked there. Um, and there's a heap of Joe is a fantastic writer. Um, he's put things really clearly, as you're already hearing today. Um, you will, you will, you'll get a heap of education and probably some stock ideas too, just quietly, um, from following along with some of that. Not that the not the letters are about stock ideas, and they're all, I think they're all past commentary rather than rather than future recommendations but yeah. you just get some interesting tidbits as to the sort of companies that Joe's investing in the way he invests and, and that sort of stuff can you not say anything about your performance Joe come on are you are you, are you being humble or are you, are you precluded from talking about it um I, I I suppose I could so as of only, only what's on the public record of course yeah public record um well let me let me pull pull it up while we're talking that's how that's how the magic happens in hollywood people <laughs> um we'll edit this bit out later joe no i'm kidding we won't we'd never do so, so uh it's through, all live. through the end of may 2020 the yes. lake house small companies fund had returned um 27 or 23.3 percent per annum net of fees and expenses since inception which is important fools so net of fees joe's joe's made his money we paid everybody, and there's 23.3 percent left for investors. Yep. Yeah, and the benchmark had done 7.3. That's um, less than 23.3. Last I checked. Uh, yes, and then to, <laughs> I guess to put it, um, I apologize. I'm, I'm, you know, it's funny. I'm not used to people asking me on the spot. Uh, total return since inception has been 109.8 percent, and 28.3 for the benchmark. And then for that the global fund, really good. Thank you. And for the global fund, which started. Uh, December 1st, 2017, uh, that has returned through the end of May 75.5% net of fees and expenses mm-hmm. compared to 21.1% for its benchmark. Um, and you can get all the, the benchmark data and all the performance stuff on our website, and, and you should, um, including <laughs> getting caveats about past performance, not being indicative of future returns. As you can tell, Joe is uh, super keen on compliance, as am I, so uh, those things are very, you know what, they're actually, they're actually not as important as we make them sound in the sense that we're not as obliged to do it as we as we might otherwise be, uh, but when you start from a position of let's make sure our listeners, our investors, our members, our readers, whoever, are as informed as they possibly can be and as warned and, and aware as they possibly can be, then you know you can sleep at night, mate. I find, I find that for, for us, like, you know, it's it's... 
we absolutely will always you know make sure we cross the cross the t's and dot the i's legally but the whole moral ethical thing is actually another level on top of that which we could have said we could absolutely have be sit in the same office right now having this conversation um we just choose not to because we think it's the right thing to do and just just keeps us above reproach and that's a that's a pretty good starting point so just to re- reiterate on that point the motley fool does own lake house capital um joe doesn't work for me they don't worry about that joe's luckily for him and, and for me and for uh, his investors uh, get, gets to make his own decisions uh, but we are both owned by the same entity uh both in australia and then globally so we are part of the same company and you should listen to this podcast in that context as i said i'm, I'm excited to talk to joe just because i don't get to do this normally so this is kind of fun uh, the only time we've had this conversation is when you actually address some of our members at a member event and again same thing i get to ask you some questions in a public forum there which i otherwise couldn't ask you so i'm pretty excited about this um and certainly enjoying the conversation. Um, are you able to, to talk about some of the uh, some of the ways you've been assessed by external parties or no? Um, hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, I suppose so. You know, and, and part of the reason that when when talking about performance, I'm always quick to to kind of tamp it down. It's it's not just for mm-hmm. compliance. It's because you know ultimately you're looking for investors who are are going to be backing you around your philosophy right, right. and your process. You know, it's it's not on what you've done in the past. I mean, obviously, yeah. you know, we exist to deliver differentiated performance and long term outperformance. That's the yeah. whole reason we exist. If we didn't, you know, if that wasn't the goal, then <laughs> you know, I. I don't know what I'd be doing. I certainly wouldn't be at this company. Right, right, right. But um, you know, we're looking to to make clear and consistently execute on our, our process, which is you know long term, high conviction, looking for asymmetric mm-hmm. outcomes, and that's ultimately what we try to do day to day. And if we do good work on the process and we're consistent with it, then hopefully that'll drive you know the long term outcomes that we're seeking. So, so you're saying you're saying the potential investors come for the process stay for the long-term performance um yeah I, uh, that's a good one let me write that down <laughs> but yeah no that's that's <laughs> take, the spirit of it um nice. because i you know we yeah we're, we're not looking for um people to chase what we've done in the past it's it's more about yeah. you know whether the philosophy and process aligns with what they're looking for and when we we talk to you know sophisticated investors that's typically what they grill us on is okay well let's dig into your process is this repeatable and that's a big one particularly growth investors you know the the question that growth investors always get is what did you just get lucky with insert stock here (laughs) and so what you what you really have to hammer home is like look um first of all equity investing is all about upside capture because most investments actually lose money in absolute terms and you're banking on a small number of you know winners driving your yeah. your outperformance. Yeah. Um, but yeah, what we try to really emphasize is the process around it, and of course, you have to have the actual process beneath it. And <laughs> you know, and you'd know from our working together in the past that you know yeah. I'm very very much process driven guy, and and ultimately the idea is that you build out with the team that. We're all very much on the same page, you know. All going in the same direction, have strong alignment. And I, I will say, I've worked on teams in the past where not everyone on the team basically shared the same core investing philosophy, and that works about as badly as you think it would. You know, you, <laughs> you, know, you, you just have people pitching ideas for the wrong strategy. And um, nice, nice. You know, we've I've taken a lot of time and care here to invest a lot in hiring. Um, very fortunate to have uh, an awesome team of analysts with me here and mm-hmm. it's been a lot of fun nice 
Um, so you're going to dodge the question, which I'll let you do. And if you want to find out a little bit more about Lake House's performance, do a bit of Googling it. It's not hard to find. Uh, but come for the come for the process, save for the returns, and I'll trademark that now. So it's been heard here first. Um, mate, uh, I'm going to get you to answer a couple if you don't mind. It's going to be past investments, of course, because I know you have compliance uh, requirements. Tell us about a couple, maybe one, a couple of your past successful investments as a learning tool for our, for our listeners. So some of the things have gone really, really, really well. What have you learned from that? Or what, what are some of the attributes you'd say, you know what, I bought that stock, here's what I expected, here's what it did, or here's, I didn't expect it to be so good, but here's what happened. Just some, some have a lesson to them or some, something that's, they can, a nugget that our listeners can take away and apply to their own investing. Sure. So I'll probably talk about Prometicus, uh, which is a business mm-hmm. that a lot of fool fans and followers would be familiar with. Anyone who's yes. not listening, um, the, the core of Prometicus is it's a, a small, now less small than before, um, <laughs> yeah. Australian uh, software company. It's listed under healthcare, uh, but what they really do is they provide a, a software tool that allows doctors and uh, radiologists to look at scans and do so in a way that is ultra high res, loads really quickly, and is very flexible. Uh, it kind of mm-hmm. sits on top of the the tech stack within healthcare. They have been gobbling up share of uh, their market for a while, and you know this is a business that I think I was with you at a small cap conference mm-hmm. not long after I got here, so ballpark seven years ago, and we saw them present, and I was like, well, this is a really interesting business. Um, but back then, it was you know so small. Um, flash forward. We start Lake House, and that was late 2016. Early 2017, um, there was a pretty big sell-off in smaller companies, and particularly growth and and quality just got really taken out of the woodshed. And there was a stretch there where Prometicus had sold off really hard. And, you know, for context, um, the business, I, I can't remember exactly where it was growing at that point in time. Uh, but growing at very, very healthy rates with huge amounts of operating leverage, strong recurring revenue. Uh, the founder, co-founder Sam Huppert, um, still owned around 30% of the business at the time. Two co-founders owned almost two-thirds of it. Um, impressive history of capital allocation. They'd bought the Visage business, which is the economic engine of the business That's amazing, today. right? <laughs> yeah, they bought that during the GFC. Um, yeah. Because they had cash on hand and they were able to play offense and they bought it for a song. Mm-hmm. And, you know, now it's the, the lion's share of the value of the business today. Amazing. Yeah, it's a pretty awesome story. And so they have a, a really strong history of not just growing the business, but capital allocation. And so back around then, they announced that they were doing a, um, they'd actually started repurchasing shares. It had been a long time since they had done a share repurchase. And I took that as a super strong sign. Something else to keep in mind with this business is that their their clientele, the people who buy their software, it's the Mayo Clinics of the world. It's um, it's large scale hospitals for the well, the most valuable deals. Um, there aren't too many Mayos out there, as they're fond of saying, <laughs> but um, large large buyers. And so these deals take a long time to close. And there's not a lot of transparency on the process because for any number of reasons, a procurement process or the the process for choosing um, you know, a, a visage or a competitor can take a very, very long time. And so mm-hmm. if you're an investor from the outside looking in, 
you know, you probably take that in a way that it can be frustrating if you're someone who requires sugar highs um, as an investor. But for us, we just looked at that and saw the repurchase. The stock had come back a bit. Balance sheet was great. Growth was strong. And, you know, it was a strong indicator to us that, you know, there are all kinds of reasons why a CEO or, um, for example, and this wasn't insider buying, this was the company buying back its stock, but there might be all kinds of reasons the company might sell shares or a CEO mm-hmm. might sell shares. You know, it might be too large for their portfolio. Maybe they, you know, Marcus Blackmore, you need to build a boat. Um, <laughs> but there's some good- twice, like, by the way. I did that again recently. Did you say that? Yeah, yeah. Good. <laughs> I saw that and I laughed. Um, and, and hey, good on them. Uh, but there, there, oh, totally. uh, yeah. there are valid reasons you might do that. There's only one reason you buy, right? right. And when the company was buying Best Stock, we took that really positively. And I want to say that was around four or five bucks. And <laughs> nice. you know, around today, it's uh, it's around twenty six. And it's it's been a journey. It's been up. It's been down. But um, mm-hmm. you know, high quality growth business, founder alignment, good balance sheet. The founders, you know, the CEO had a great mm-hmm. history of capital allocation and creating value and um and they bought back stock for the first time in a long time that was a pretty bright green light for us thank you very much i would love to ask you whether you still own it whether you still recommend it but i can't do either because you haven't released that number so i won't i will move on instead mate to the opposite question if you can be so kind i have made an absolute truckload of mistakes in my investing career more than i can dare to count or even dare to admit to but plenty um, are there any you would be prepared to share? Maybe a lesson you learned that our listeners could take away from it? Sure. I mean, I've, like you, I've been doing it for a long time. So I had a long <laughs> list of mistakes. <laughs> a long list that I've made. Um, fortunately, most of those were made with my own money. And uh, <laughs> when I had some hair, um, which might explain why I have less of it now. But um, <laughs> Those were the days, weren't they? The days with hair. Let's see. So many, so many good examples to choose from. I guess what I would say was going into the GFC. What um, I had been concerned about housing in the states for a while, but uh, I'm generally, you know, an optimistic long-term investor, and so I didn't let that um, rattle me too much. But I guess what I, um, what I underestimated and what I've been careful to, to do more of since then was underestimate um, ripple effects from not just a contagion, <clears throat> but kind of second or, or even third order effects when okay. when there's a recession or there's a tough time. So, you know, for example, back then, real estate was really struggling. And I, I'm going to say this, and it sounds ridiculous saying it out loud, but um, you could look at banks, for example, that it issued, sold a lot of subprime, or issued a lot of subprime mortgages. Mm. They'd been hammered, they were really cheap, uh, but those struck me as high risk. But instead, I bought shares of Semex, which is a massive, uh, or was, massive uh, Mexican (laughs) cement company on the basis that it was super cheap, uh, that its cost advantages were durable and would rebound, which is true. However. I don't know if you're aware of this, but they use a lot of cement when they're building new homes, is, uh, <laughs> as it turns out. And so I've, I've heard that. I have heard that. So I got absolutely I can, tagged I on it. Uh, but right. it, it sounds so naive now, right? But um, you know, you 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 learn some sense, tough lessons. Uh, but just thinking through second order effects uh, with the company like you're investing in. 
And then just, you know, an easy one that it's, it's kind of hard to tell normal people. It's like, oh, just think through the second and third order effects. Like, <laughs> you know, thanks. Let me just write that down. Um, I'd say, fo- yeah. yeah, I'd say focusing on balance sheet quality is, is a key right. one. Now, I will say everybody's talking about that now. Uh, yeah, but the time to focus on it is when no <laughs> one's talking about it, you know? Right, and exactly. Like, if you flash back five months ago, like, and this is just our general biases to back companies with strong balance sheets, um, you know, that's at a time when, like, frankly, no one cared. You know, they didn't really care if you were really cashed up, moderately cashed up, or if you were running with some debt. And it didn't matter because liquidity, the, the gates were open, economy was fine. Sounds it's just that, yeah, yeah, but it's that once a, you know, once every few years there's a recession. I realize not here, <laughs> but you know, globally, um, right. you know, even That's if right. it's once a decade, you know, when the tide goes yeah. out, it's those companies yeah. that have really strong balance sheets who they weather the downturn better in terms of mm-hmm. share price performance. But more importantly, if you're a long-term investor, which should be, um, they're able to continue investing in R&D, continue investing in sales. They don't have to let as many people go. They might even be net hiring. Um, they can take care of their employees and you know take better care of their vendors. You know they don't, and that's another one. That's a subtle one, but they're not going out and shaking down you know their suppliers for the best terms possible. And I gotta say, people remember that, right? You know, people remember how you treat them during tough times. Yeah, you know. Yeah. And coming out on the other side of it, it's those companies that are going to be much better capitalized to. To benefit, whether it's a V recovery or a Nike swoosh or you know a W or a Z or you know pick your <laughs> pick your shape or letter, um, but they're in a much better place. Alphabet, and and that's one that you know you don't need a you don't need to be a CFA charter holder to wrap your head around that. Yeah. You know it, it's fairly straightforward, but applicable for anyone. I do I do like the story. I assume it's not a proc for, but it may be of Costco. Uh, one of the Costco buyers going to his boss saying, hey, I've got a great deal. I screwed this guy down by whatever it was. And his boss said, you go back and you call him and you tell him you give him the money that he originally asked for because we want to keep our, our suppliers in business. And yeah. I thought, you know, A, assuming it's true, it speaks very well of Costco. But to, to your point, you can be dead sure that is now Costco's most loyal supplier because they know they're going to be treated well. They know that, you know, when, when push comes to shove, Costco are going to be a reliable, trustworthy, respectful partner rather than someone who's just out there to get the best price and, you know, um, burn the village on the way through. Yeah, no, I, I think that's really important. And, you know, frankly, with our own business, um, you know, we operate the same way. Um, when everything really started falling to pieces, um, you know, you heard about all these companies choosing not to pay rent and whatnot. And yeah. I'm like, you know, hey, we told people we'd, we told people we'd pay them. We're going to keep doing it just like always. <laughs> and yeah, I actually, exactly. I had a yeah. chat with um, Kira McDonough, who's the Molly Fool's CFO. And I just asked her, I was like, hey, look, are we changing any of our terms and she's like no we're you know we're doing as usual and i was really happy to hear that you know because i think as a business we're in a position um you know we're we're a private company but it's probably a bigger company a lot of people realize and you know i was just happy to hear that we were doing right by our partners doing the right thing totally man i've got to ask you quickly we'll wrap up in a second but just a quick one you talk about second and third order effects i wonder if you can Give me a sense, if you have a, a formed view at the moment, of the second and third order effects of the pandemic. Now, maybe we've already gone through some of them, but it, to, to exactly that point, that, that way of thinking, okay, we know what's happening. We know what happened before. We know what's happening now. 
Are there any second and third order impacts? Maybe the, the lesser known, lesser assumed ones. Is there anything that kind of springs to mind? You say, you know what I think is going to happen in X months' time, or you know what the, the, the flow and effect of this thing is. You, you talk about some of the well, not necessarily first order, but you know, growth online retail is probably not a, a, a long putt from here. Anything you can kind of think that is less obvious, less known, less covered as a second or third order impact of what we might either going coming be going into or coming out of. Yeah, one that um, Australians will find a little uh, cute, but tap-and-go payments. So when I moved here, yeah, right, the first okay. time I encountered that, I was like, oh, so I just I, I tap it. And you should see the people <laughs> looking at me, you know, like, <laughs> what an idiot. Just, buddy, you just take it and you, you put it there, right? And I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. Um, and it took off here uh, very quickly and, and has yeah. in a lot of parts of the world, but not not really the U.S. And there are a couple reasons. One is that so the U.S. invented digital payments, uh, but kind of doesn't benefit from a it's kind of the curse of being the, the first mover on something like that, because you end up with this really, you know, thick nest of infrastructure that's really hard to untangle. And so even though everyone could pretty much agree it would be great if we could move towards tap and go as a payment option <laughs> in the states just like that yeah. there's this whole ecosystem of people involved in hardware and and the market's not as consolidated as it is here uh, at point right. of sale so there's just been a slow slow burn of it but what's happened is you know suddenly merchants don't want to take cash people don't want to carry cash and so you've seen this rapid change where merchants have have rapidly started um, have started offering tap and go, or they've prioritized it, started bringing it forward. Um, and you know, I would say that's been a net beneficiary of of obviously the uh, the payment companies, but it's also the ones that the ones that are actually in a position to capitalize on it. And not all of them are. Um, I guess another one that think would be um, worth watching has been that if you look at big tech, which for a while has been, you know, uh, it's been picked on and not unfairly <laughs> in a lot of cases yeah. over the past few yeah. years yeah. Um, in the U.S. So if you're talking Facebook, you're talking Amazon, which I own, we own at the fund, um, talking Alphabet, you look at those, they've really been taken out to the woodshed a bunch of times, and yet I'd say they've been awesome corporate citizens during this crisis and have worked yeah. very closely with governments to help disseminate accurate information, helpful information, provide insights to governments and to, to merchants, to individuals. And, you know, when you think about the knock-on effects of that, that could be pretty profound. Um, it certainly helps to take a little bit of uh, the venom out of some of the bites they've been taking. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Is there a bit of a, a bit of a Yomi one? Do you think in that? I mean, Amazon and Apple working together. Sorry, Alphabet and Apple. Sorry, working together for the first time. Uh, I think ever on the on the, their kind of COVID tracking was a bit of a breakthrough, right? But is there a bit of a lawmaker? Hey, guys, we did the right thing in twenty twenty. How about you get off our case for a few years? Uh, well, I'm sure that would never be said. No, no. But <laughs> except over, except, over, except over a beer or two, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> except over uh, you know uh-huh. a Rick, you know. A, gin and tonic in dc um in a cigar filled club um a private club yeah no i it, it can't hurt right it can't hurt yeah mate um 
just just on that, the, you mentioned kind of the the challenge of a, an old existing system kind of keeping up, and it's one thing. I, I guess I'll make a statement, maybe as a view, and you can give me some thoughts. Disruptors have a really really tough time kind of crossing or getting over the parapet, whatever 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 uh, moti kind of analogy we want to use. But it does seem to me once they hit a certain point, legacy goes from being a massive massive benefit to being a huge potential cost. Right the if you're if you're a brand new payments processor, literally starting from scratch, the chances of success are really small on day one. Once you get to a certain size, though, once you kind of almost it's almost that idea of like once you manage to pass them on the straight, the challenge for a legacy mob of trying to catch up. They've got a really profitable existing business. It's complex. It's difficult. Yeah, we could probably try and change everything, but do we want to jeopardize that profit? It goes from being a massive benefit to almost I won't say as big a cost, but a massive cost. I mean. You know, trying to trying to literally, I, I've always loved the Amazon. I own Amazon shares for the record. The Amazon thing of Bezos sending the Kindle team across to the other side of the country, saying, "Build me, build me an e-book business." It may destroy our current physical book business, but if it does, then we'll at least be glad we were there. He's one of the few CEOs that immediately come to mind of someone who said, "Let's go and deliberately destroy our current business if we need to to make sure we're at the forefront of this." Other CEOs, other businesses, almost without exception, will circle away against protect what they've got. And then wonder why they still end up losing. Any thoughts on that, or how you think about investing in companies in that situation? Oh, definitely. So we met with. I'll give you a couple examples from outside Australia. Talk about TradeMe and Mercado Libre. So we met with TradeMe, and this must have been five five-ish years ago, okay. um, in Wellington. Had a great conversation. TradeMe, phenomenal business. Um, you know, they were very early built a lot of loyal customers, added a lot of value, and it's super popular and for good reasons. So good on them. Uh, when we went to meet with them, you know, I, I was really impressed. And then kind of late in the meeting, I was like, so what are you guys doing? You know, like when you look at online retail, just like any retail, you're competing on price, you're competing on selection and convenience. But convenience within online retail captures a few things. It's convenience that the point of sale. So are you making it easy for people to discover items that are relevant to them and that they want? Are you making it easy to transact? And then they're shipping. So how well are you fulfilling? Are you getting products to people quickly? Do they know when it's coming? Is it accurate when it gets to them? If there's a return, how does that go? And that fulfillment part is much harder to execute on than having a slick website. Or you, you know, having a nice checkout experience because it takes right, investment and logistics and coordination. And I asked them, I was like, you know, it's you guys, you know, it seems like you really, you clearly run away with the market here. Like it's over. The war is over, over. I'm just wondering, what are you doing to improve speed to customer on delivery? And they're like, mm. what do you mean? I'm like, well, you know, that to me seems like your only real structural weakness because trade me is a marketplace you know for, for anyone who's not aware and the thing with marketplaces like that like an ebay or a gumtree and in a lot of gumtree it's it's not shipping based it's um you know you drive over and make turn it on to make sure it works and you hand cash and take it <laughs> uh, but if it's it's more like an ebay where there's a ship um involved mm -hmm. well if that's the case then you know what are you doing to make it faster because if you're third party you know, typically, well, most of these sales or a big proportion of them are from small merchants or just, you know, individual people who, let's face it, most individuals are not logistics machines, right? Optimized around <laughs> shipping quickly. They'll kind of get yep. to it when they get to it. 
And I'm yeah. like, you know, what are you doing to improve that? Because if, you know, Amazon drops down here, they may not go straight into Wellington, but if they come down to, you know, Australasia, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> they build out a first party hub, they're going to focus, that's going to be their big point of differentiation. You know, it's yeah. not just yeah. price and selection, but it's how quickly they can get products to you. And they were like, no, oh, we're not doing anything on that. And I was like, <laughs> oh, okay. And it's because they had, you know, incremental 75% EBITDA margins or something like right. that. And, and they were happy with that. And yeah. So you know, why would you unless you thought there was competition around the corner? Yeah. But I would say that <laughs> if that's probably the short term, maybe the medium term optimal decision. But I'll, I'll tell you a different path that I think made a lot more sense and that is still happening and the jury's still out, but that we're excited about is Mercado Libre. So mm-hmm. anyone who's not familiar, and you're probably not, it's the eBay of Latin America is the best way to put it. The, the founders of Mercado Libre saw what was happening with eBay and said, we need to build this in LATAM before eBay gets here. And they did. <laughs> to their credit, they did. It LATAM became, being Latin America for those who aren't uh, American by birth. Oh, what's that? LATAM being Latin America. Just, yes, just, sorry. Yes. yes. That's all right. That's um, all right. And they started building it. It took off. And if you go back in time a few years, um, they, they, you know, they executed really well. They launched Mercado Pago, which is basically mm-hmm. their version of PayPal. It was, so it was an on-platform payment option that eventually became external. And now most of Mercado uh, Pago's payment volume is actually off Mercado Libre. Very it was cool. exciting. Um, but to go back a few years, if you looked at their margins, it was very, very reminiscent of Trade Me, where just gushed cash. They actually paid a dividend. I mean, how many <laughs> Latin American tech stocks <laughs> pay dividends, right? Um, that tells you how much yeah. cash was coming out. But yeah, they made right. a, a really bold decision, which was look, we're going to invest in logistics and we're going to move closer to our customer because shipping. Is taking too long. It's not reliable enough, and we can't, we're relying on a network of drop shippers and, in some cases, unions, and they're being disruptive. And we need to we need to control this part of our network. It's going to hurt our margins a lot. And but the trade is it's going to hurt our margins, but we think it's going to maximize the long term value of the business. And just like Jeff Bezos always talks about. Well, he doesn't really talk all that much about his business. Um, but when you can corner him, it, as if I say that like Jeff and I talk all the time. I've never, never talked. I've never talked to the guy. I've never seen him in person. Um, but yeah, and he does something like four. I'm really. I'm a tangent. I'm a tangent. I'm a tangent. He only does four hours of IR a year, from what I hear. And I've not been allocated any cool. of that time. Um, but yet. He, yet. Uh, but what he talks about is, you know, we're we're not trying to maximize um, our free cash flow margin. We're trying to maximize free cash flow and aggregate and to do it in long-term terms. So basically what Mercado Mercado Libre traded was short-term profitability, but in exchange, they dramatically improved shipping times, which accelerated the number of people coming to their, basically accelerated growth on units. So they suddenly had a lot more buying, which attracts more sellers, which in a network-driven model attracts more buying. Um, improve selection and price across the system, allowing them to reinvest more into logistics. And this is this is not an original premise. They just saw what Amazon was doing and said, right. we need to do that. We should but, do that too, yeah, yeah, yeah. But to be fair, they did it. And the thing is, eBay never did it. Um, Trade Me, 
you know, right. maybe later Trade Me did some work on it. I, I can't really speak to that because I didn't continue following them. But Mercado Libre took the bull by the horns and said, we're going to disrupt ourselves and we're going to be a third party marketplace that yeah. invests heavily in, in logistics and distribution. And they did. And it's it's really accelerated their unit growth. And I think it makes them a much more robust, defensible business. Um, yeah. But, you know, if you look at their if you look at their margins over the past few years, you're like, what happened here? This is crazy. Um, <laughs> yeah, but that's right, what's right. been happening. And I, I think you that's phenomenal. If you're invested in the company today, you know, based the, the big meta question is, do you think mm. that this is going to enhance the value of the business or not? And yeah, right. obviously we do. Uh, and I own it personally, for that matter. Um, but yes, you know, we we think it's a, a good example of um, taking a very different view and be willing to invest. And that is the sort of depth of research you're going at Lakehouse Capital. Joe, I want to say thank you for bringing that up because it's one company I should have bought about 10 years ago. I never quite got around to buying and I've just kick myself ever since and then keep kicking myself while I should have kept buying so uh, in the in the realm of mistakes um, that's going to be pretty close to the top of mind just a sheer lost opportunity for uh, wealth creation so thank you for well not thank you but you know no need to no need to thank yeah. you Scott good, well, good I got okay. I got plenty Mate. of those if it makes you feel any better <laughs> you've been very generous with your time can we wrap that with a quick round of buy hold or sell to steal a, a segment from our US cousins sure alright Joe Mayer Chief Investment Officer of Lakehouse Capital buy hold or sell Australian banks at the current prices. Uh, mm, can, what time horizon are we talking? Are we talking our typical five years? Um, oof, I, I'm going to say sell. Um, I think that there's still there's still a fair bit to be worked through the system from what's just happened. They're also not classically cheap, even though they've come off a long way. Um, but I guess I'd put it like this. In, in absolute terms, I'd give them a hold. If I, and I do, run a fund where I have a lot, of, <laughs> I have a lot more options at my disposable, yeah, right. I, I think at disposable, I think they're, they're better options. Very I nice. mean, in a, in, a more, I in a more secular <laughs> sense, it's not just yep. that. It's that you know, capital requirements have gone up. Royal Commission has really tightened, you know, their ability and probably rightly to um, yes, to cross and upsell. It's it's forced them to raise the bar on compliance and infrastructure, and and all that's positive. It's just also really expensive. So you're talking about structurally lower returns on assets on a structurally smaller degree of leverage, which makes the business more robust, which is good. But it also means cross cycle returns on equity are going to be smaller, which is less good. <laughs> Are we buying, holding, or selling Australian houses and house prices? Um, I, I'm going to say sell. I, I Here's the thing. I think of things in terms of ranges of... Well, okay. Let me rephrase that. I think that for... You know, the, the average person buying a home, right... It's if you're going to the average person, if they're going to be in a home for a really long time and that's the plan, it is overwhelmingly historically the logical choice to just buy it and own it. So, you know, historically, that's been true here. That's been true in the States and in most developed markets. So, you know, with that kind of as the baseline, um, you know, I don't think people should be like buying and selling properties, just wheeling and dealing. Um, you know, <laughs> but if I'm. 
if I'm thinking about, I guess I'll put it in, I'll put it in hold territory then. But when I think of ranges of outcomes, what gives me a little bit of pause is, you know, people who put, you know, if you're levered 10 to one on a property that you're negatively, you're, you're levered 10 to one and you're getting, you're negatively geared. So, you know, people get so excited, like, I'm, I'm losing money, so I get my tax deduction. I'm like, you missed the first part. Um, they're giving you the deduction for a reason. Um, you know, I, I think that if you're burning cash, you're levered 10 to 1. I think what's yeah. happened over the past three, four months has really exposed the, the underbelly. And granted, what's been happening it's been a massive shock that, you know, I'm not going to sit here and pretend like, huh, and that pandemic that I predicted in November. Um, you know, of <laughs> course right. that didn't happen. But yeah. what I think people should just appreciate is that recessions do happen. Um, and that can, you know, that can be really challenging. And something else I would just keep in mind is the range of outcomes on interest rates. So even though I have no reason to think that interest rates are going to race higher from here, mm. No one. That's also a strongly held consensus view, and rates are really low. And so, for a lot of investors who have a lot of leverage or negatively geared deeply, you know, if prices were to or if rates were to run away, that could be a really challenging problem. And so, you know, it's just things I would keep in mind in a range of outcome sense. Very nice. Buy, hold, or sell the A. So you let me get this context. You run the Lake House Small Companies Fund, which is based on the ASX. You run the Lake House Global Growth Fund, which is obviously global by nature. Buy, hold, or sell the ASX outperforming the U.S. markets over the next five years. Hmm. I would take the over on the ASX um, with with a low degree of conviction because <laughs> okay. I I don't think you know, making making um, that kind of high level call isn't really my bread and butter, but uh, yeah, right. that would be based on, I think the Australian market in relative terms has had a tougher time than the U S and, and that would probably be why, but I think when you unpack it, there's a really wide, wide range of, of drivers to that. Um, you know, I think the U S has got some large technology companies that are global leaders and a lot of them will stay that way. Um, but then, you know, on the ASX, there's some breakout companies here that I think are really interesting as well. And a lot of the larger companies have just been shellacked. So while I may not be excited about owning banks, for example, and we don't, at the same time, I acknowledge, you know, a lot of them, their share prices basically went sideways for five years. And generally speaking, companies that have structural competitive advantages, share prices go sideways for five years. I don't know. On average, those probably work out okay. A couple of fun ones, mate. Uh, you're sitting. You're sitting. On, I'm watching you on Zoom as we record this, and you have a G on your vest, mate. So buy, hold, or sell the prospects of the University of Georgia American football team. <laughs> oh, I'm a strong buy. We've had <laughs> we've had a couple of super strong recruiting classes in a row. I have uh, all faith in. Kirby Smart is our head coach. Uh, it will be interesting to see what happens with football coming back later this year. So Georgia Stadium yeah. holds 90,000 people. wonder how many people are going to be there, how many they'll let in. Uh, they're still trying to figure all that out. And, you know, college sports in America, it's, it's big business, but it's also got a big cost structure around it. And so, sadly, there have been a lot of um, college sporting programs, fortunately not at Georgia, because... They've got a huge alumni network of people like me um, who are just rabid fans. 
Um, but at schools where sports <laughs> aren't as big a deal, you know, they've they've had to cut programs, right, cut course. scholarships, and um, which is unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Are you uh, so if if you're looking for a college football team, you'd recommend Georgia? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> My last one: buy, hold, or sell hollow houses by the lake. Oh well, <laughs> you know what's funny? Um, I. I you know, they're, they're awfully nice to have in the family. But if I'm being economically <laughs> rational, uh, Airbnb is a pretty fantastic alternative <laughs> to owning an actual lake house because you just go when you want to go and you don't have to keep up with it. You don't have to worry about some uh, random people breaking into your place in the winter or anything <laughs> like that. But uh, but they're an awful lot of fun to have. So do we see a renaming of Airbnb, just Airbnb at Capital coming instead of Lake House Capital or are you stuck with the name? I was joking earlier, if we came up with a sub-brand, it would be Boathouse. But. <laughs> I like that. I like that. There's a whole thing that can go with there. You just keep going from there, right? Small, Progressively house. smaller houses. <laughs> Backshed. Yeah. Dollhouse. <laughs> Dollhouse. There we go. Dollhouse Capital coming to a market near you. Joe, you have been exceedingly kind and exceedingly patient. Thank you so much for sharing your time and knowledge. I've enjoyed this chat immensely because, as I said, I don't get to do it very often um, and I'm missing out. But, mate, thank you very much. If you do want to know more about Lakehouse Capital and Joe and the team, Go to lakehousecapital.com.au. Find out lots of good stuff there. Even Google them. Maybe Google Lakehouse Capital Performance. See what comes up. You might be pleasantly surprised. And I will just reiterate that we are owned by the same business and the same company. So please keep that in mind. And as Joe has said many times already, but I will add one more time, past performance is clearly no guarantee. So if you're going to invest with Lakehouse, do it because you love what they're doing and how they're doing it, not because you want to get some short-term returns. All right, that wraps us up. But before we go, don't forget you can and you should subscribe <coughs> Excuse me, to Triple M Motley Full Money through iTunes or your favorite Android podcast app. And if you like what we're doing, please give us a rating. Five stars would be lovely. If not for me, do it for Joe. And do tell your friends. I'm sure they could use a little foolish straight talk to and a little bit of information about Lakehouse Capital this week while they're here. And don't forget you can get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox by going to fool.com.au forward slash Triple M. That's it for this Motley Fool Money. We'll be back soon with another dose of Foolish Insight. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.